The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 29th, 2022. It's been an important few months in terms of U.S.-China relations. Just this month, the Chinese Communist Party held its 20th National Congress, which saw Xi Jinping secure his third term in office. The Biden administration released new export controls, and tensions are still simmering over the fate of Taiwan. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from 2020. In the episode, Scott R. Anderson sat down with Tarun Shahabra of the Brookings Institution, Elsa Kanya of the Center for a New American Security, and Rob Williams, Executive Director of the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School. They discussed disagreements between the U.S. and China over trade, tech, human rights, and more. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 24th, 2020. In recent months, relations between the United States and China seem to reach a new low, as disagreements over trade, tech, human rights, and the coronavirus have led the two sides to exchange increasingly harsh rhetoric. Just weeks ago, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went so far as to suggest that the decades-long experiment of U.S. engagement with China had been a mistake. But is this heightened tension just a bump in the road, or a new direction for one of the United States' most important bilateral relationships? To discuss these issues, I sat down with an all-star panel of China watchers, including Tarun Chabra of the Brookings Institution and Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology, Elsa Kanya of the Center for a New American Security, and Rob Williams, Executive Director of the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 24th, The State of the U.S.-China Relationship. So before we start about the current state of the U.S.-China relationship, I want to go back a couple of years. Tarun, give us a little bit of an orientation to what that relationship looked like when the Trump administration inherited it. What were the major concerns that the Obama administration dealt with? And in what state did it leave them when it handed the ship or the reins of the ship over to the Trump administration? Thanks, Scott. I, I don't think the relationship between the United States and China was on an even keel in 2016 and 2017. Um, you had some near-term agreements on climate and on cyber theft, as you and most of your listeners know. But if you kind of look at the, the human rights situation there as to how it was developing, whether 
kind of laying the groundwork for what's happening now in Xinjiang or the decimation of the human rights bar. If you look at the acceleration of China's industrial policy in kind of the commanding heights of technology, unwanted technology transfer, security security situation in the South China Sea or the beginnings of the uptick in political interference in Taiwan and a whole range of other issues, I think tensions were on the rise. And for that reason, I think you had a pretty vigorous debate in the Obama administration, particularly toward the end, and a bit of a shift in the posture toward China overall, if you were to look back uh, around to 2016. So I, I think that a reckoning and a shift was well underway before the election in 2016, and we were going to see one, we were going to see some form of it, no matter who won the election in 2016. So from the outset, China was a major focus for the Trump administration. I think we can all think back to what was the first sort of infamous summit President Trump hosted at the quote-unquote Winter White House at Mar-a-Lago was with Chinese President Xi Jinping. And it really set the tenor of a lot of relationship, made it a real focus, and their personal relationship a real focus. And a lot of that had to do around discussions focused on trade, often to the exclusion, it seemed, at times, of other issues. Rob, can you tell us a little bit, what was the Trump administration's initial approach to the U.S.-China relationship? Why was it so trade-focused, and how did other issues fit in? And how have that focus on trade changed and evolved over time? Yeah, well, it's great to be here, Scott. Um, You know, it's hard to characterize it as a single approach. You know, as with many other issues, there's been a fair bit of inconsistency between President Trump and his advisors who themselves have argued for different approaches at different times. I mean, just for example, you know, you had the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, which were published in in 2017 and 18. And those marked a a pretty decisive shift in articulation of the U.S. approach to China, uh, at least by the, the national security bureaucracy around President Trump. Those documents and other follow-on statements from the administration explicitly now frame the relationship as one of strategic competition, and at least rhetorically seem to dispense with the notion that you know our objective should be to incentivize China to become a, a responsible stakeholder in the international system. Uh, you know, to use the famous Bob Zelik formulation. But at the presidential level, the story has been much more mixed. So coming into office, you know, as you suggest, President Trump clearly wanted a deal on uh, number one, trade, uh, and number two, North Korea. And he was willing to put a lot of other issues to the side in order to get that, you know, whether it was human rights issues like Xinjiang and Hong Kong or security issues like uh, China's expansionism in the South China Sea. And of course, you know, he was firmly opposed to the idea of of working with allies on the trade deal, in part because he saw many of those allies as part of the problem on trade, not the solution. Even still, you did see a lot of movement beneath the presidential level. Uh, We had, you know, investment screening and export control reform enacted in 2018, aimed at uh, protecting strategic technologies. Uh, followed by you know a series of measures targeting Huawei and its role in, in building 5G telecom infrastructure. Uh, you also saw Congress and the president relax DOD authorities around cyber 
activities, partly in response to China's uh, cyber intrusions and U.S. networks, and then a whole range of counterintelligence actions by the FBI and, and Department of Justice. So this made for a kind of disorderly approach where the president and his aides and advisors didn't always seem to be on the same page. And that was compounded, I think, by the fact that Trump approached his overriding priority of getting a trade deal with China in a way that was often you know, inconsistent with the prescriptions of the U.S. Trade Representative and others. Namely, he focused disproportionate attention on the bilateral trade deficit instead of on the structural issues regarding things like market access and intellectual property protection that date back to you know, the Obama administration, of course. In terms of how that played out, uh, there were the two rounds of tariff escalation in 2018 uh, and another one in May of 2019 after talks uh, broke down. But after the negotiations resumed last year, we wound up with this phase one trade deal uh, in January, just before the COVID outbreak. And you asked you know, how the trade negotiations kind of ultimately failed, which is interesting because many would argue today that this deal we have may be one of the only remaining stabilizers in the relationship. That being said, you know, the deal was actually pretty limited in scope. Uh, it was built as a kind of stepping stone for a future deal. And some of China's commitments in this phase one agreement really regurgitate previous promises Beijing had made uh, in settings like the WTO and the G20, or they kind of repackage steps China was already taking toward opening certain sectors of the economy, which is happening to some extent, by the way, uh, under the new foreign investment law and implementing regulations that went into effect this year. But uh, the phase one deal did not directly address really thorny issues like cyber theft, industrial subsidies, uh, or market access for U.S. technology companies. What it does have are some pretty ambitious promises that China will, you know, over two years purchase an additional $200 billion of American goods beyond what it imported in 2017. So it looks an awful lot like managed trade with targets that I think many people considered unrealistic even before the pandemic, but again, not as much addressing the structural concerns that go back many years. Now, I mean, just to bring us up to today with the economic hit from the pandemic, China has only met maybe a quarter of its purchasing targets for this year. And, you know, meanwhile, we're seeing a bilateral escalation across a whole range of issues, uh, some of which Tarun, you know, just mentioned, responsibility for COVID-19, South China Sea, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Huawei, uh, recent actions against TikTok and WeChat, the list goes on. And, you know, let's face it, between the political campaign season and the economic crisis we're facing, there's still a lot of volatility. There is supposed to have been a mid-year progress review on the phase one deal. The president uh, has sort of wavered on this saying, uh, I don't want to talk to China right now and, and claiming to have called off that meeting. But, you know, it, it was announced uh, that uh, they're still engaging on trade and, and set to have that progress review with Chinese counterparts in the coming days, perhaps by the time uh, this podcast airs. In any event, that, you know, that may offer some glimmer of hope for U.S. businesses in an otherwise 
very rapidly deteriorating bilateral situation. But I don't think many people expect a, a major turnaround in U.S.-China relations, at least between now and November. So against the backdrop of this ongoing economic discussion, which has been uh, at least a major focus certainly of the president and certainly the rhetoric around the U.S.-China relationship, we've seen at least two major human rights developments arise in the last year or two. Uh, And these are particularly challenging for this administration, which has traditionally really emphasized national sovereignty and autonomy over heightened scrutiny of human rights conduct by a number of states, including China. Let's talk about the first one of those, Elsa, and that is in relation to Hong Kong and the crackdown of the widespread protest movement that emerged in response to centralized Chinese control, and now the emergence of a new security law that really amps up that control and gives central Chinese authorities a lot more control over what had been a traditionally much more autonomous city. How has the Trump administration responded to these developments, and how have they fit into the broader bilateral dialogue in recent months? Uh, Thanks for the question and glad to be back on the podcast. And certainly the situation in Hong Kong is truly tragic right now. There's no other word for it to see, despite all of the activism and vigorous protests and incredible organization, the Trump administration uh, has started to treat Hong Kong as if it were any Chinese city, essentially, or As we've seen uh, Trump say, uh, Hong Kong happens to be attached to China, so to speak, which is uh, tough from certain standpoints in his words. And that is geographically accurate, uh, certainly, and increasingly the case politically as well, as we've seen the imposition of the national security law and really troubling implications for the people of Hong Kong, as well as for any... Any, any company or enterprise operating within Hong Kong, given its uh, status and centrality as a financial hub and the official designation of the U.S. government that it will, as Secretary Pompeo said, treat Hong Kong as one country, one system and and start to rescind measures that had recognized its special status, I think is it really reflects a break in U.S. policy. And just as of August 19th, we've seen the U.S. withdraw from a series of bilateral deals that had given Hong Kong special status in terms of extradition and taxation. And this, as well as the prior sanctions that had targeted a number of senior officials in Hong Kong and within the Chinese system, including Chief Executive Carrie Lam, are primarily symbolic, but do at the very least kind of display the displeasure of the U.S. government. And yet it's yeah, also troubling to see how some of the measures that are being introduced in response will, will have some damage in terms of how we think about uh, American engagement with Hong Kong. And one measure that I think is un- uncalled for and has been soundly criticized with good reason is the cutting off of the Fulbright program to China and to Hong Kong, given that this has been really critical mechanism of exchange and source of U.S. soft power, arguably, and at a time when the U.S.-China relationship is so fraught and when circumstances in Hong Kong are so fraught, there are considerations of of safety, perhaps, but also compelling reasons to sustain exchange and not to cut off these academic engagements with China as well as Hong Kong. And I mean, I think going forward, It is, again, tragic and alarming to see that we're at a point where 
a number of activists from Hong Kong and protesters are starting to think about leaving, uh, perhaps permanently, and seeking asylum. And one measure that the U.S. government has yet to introduce, but should should consider, and and hopefully there could be movement on this in the Trump administration. Though again, reasons for skepticism perhaps are are would be welcoming those who do have no choice but to leave Hong Kong at this point to the United States as refugees. And I think that is certainly warranted given the crackdown and rounds of arrests that we've seen already. The Trump administration has responded and has introduced these measures, but there aren't great options at the end of the day. And the second kind of major human rights challenge uh, on top of Hong Kong, and in a way one that's poses in a way more, even a more challenging circumstance, uh, arguably by some measures at least, is of course what's been happening in China's western uh, Xinjiang region, where there is credible evidence that Chinese authorities have been operating effectively what many would call concentration camps, where they're forcibly relocating parts of the local Muslim Uyghur population, indoctrinating them away from their religion and cultural heritage, using them for forced labor. Rob, let me ask you about this particular challenge. How is it that the Trump administration and other U.S. institutions with the bearing on the bilateral relationship as well, like Congress, reacted to this? Are we seeing it play into a permanent shift in our sort of relationship? Or is this just another sort of bump on the road that eventually is going to fade more into the background, as horrible as it may seem? Well, assuming the reporting we have is accurate, it's not just concentration camps and indoctrination, uh, but also, you know, population reduction measures uh, like forced sterilization, which amounts to a form of of demographic genocide. And, And I don't use that term lightly. In terms of the Trump administration's response uh, over the past year or so, we have seen a series of steps. Um, In October of last year, uh, the State Department imposed uh, some visa restrictions on Chinese officials related to Xinjiang. Since then, U.S. uh, Customs and Border Protection has taken action, I think at least three times, to seize goods originating from Xinjiang uh, in enforcement of a longstanding ban on the import of goods made by forced labor. There's legislation on the Hill right now that could expand those authorities as it relates to preventing forced labor in company supply chains. And in May of this year, uh, the Commerce Department added, I believe it was nine Chinese entities connected to abuses uh, in Xinjiang to the entity list. And what that does is to restrict the export of, of U.S. origin items that are subject to export controls. Uh, restricts their export to entities involved in activities uh, contrary to U.S. national security or foreign policy interests. So exporting to one of these entities requires a special license, and the exceptions are quite limited. And then in June, Congress passed the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, uh, and President Trump signed that into law. And that legislation is interesting For the first time, it calls for sanctions on a member of China's Politburo, which is a powerful body that oversees the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Xinjiang's Communist Party secretary, Chen Chuenguo, who uh, was previously uh, in the same role in Tibet, 
was designated under this statute as you know being responsible for gross human rights violations. So there were some more sanctions rolled out in July on the so-called Bingtuan, the uh, the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. I think the last I looked, there were something like 37 Chinese entities connected to Xinjiang on the entity list. And that number could very well grow. In terms of the Chinese government's response to all this, uh, it's been fairly measured. Uh, Beijing, of course, denies the allegations of, of human rights abuse, but has been far from transparent with the international community on its activities in Xinjiang. And Beijing did hit back with some retaliatory sanctions against several members of Congress, uh, including Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, as well as the Congressional Executive Commission on China. But, you know, that was largely symbolic, uh, not really an escalation. I do think it's important to note, however, you know, yes, these U.S. policies are being rolled out, but as recently as June, President Trump himself said in an interview that he had held off on Xinjiang sanctions because he was trying to get a trade deal. So this kind of gets back to your uh, earlier question. And around that same time that he made that admission, you know, former National Security Advisor John Bolton's book came out alleging that Trump had personally expressed approval of the internment camps to Xi Jinping. So again, you know, a lot of action here, but uh, also a lot of contradictions in the Trump administration's approach. And I think that has opened the door for criticism that U.S. government statements of concern over human rights in Xinjiang are being driven more by opportunism than by principle. You know, having said all that, I don't think it's an issue that is going to just be a bump in the road or fade into the background, regardless of what happens in the upcoming U.S. presidential election. To Rob's point, you know, about um, the some degree of dissonance between what President Trump has reportedly said about Xinjiang to Xi Jinping and, uh, on the other hand, what the administration has done in terms of rolling out sanctions and taking other measures. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely right to worry about the ways in which some of what has been rolled out by the administration could be rolled back on the basis of you know some other trade agreement or um, something like that because President Trump's you know views on human rights are I think pretty clear to to all of us that being said though you know I, I do think it's interesting to see that if you if you were to you know put in a room a bunch of people who may not agree actually on the shape that U.S. China policy should take, you know, some of them might, you know, take a view that the relationship is inevitably going to be more rivalrous. Others might say we have to preserve more space for cooperation. If you ask them, what do we do in response to what's happening in Hong Kong and especially in Xinjiang? Generally, they're they're going to they're not going to disagree when you say should we roll out more sanctions on the Bing Tuan? Should we roll out more sanctions on particular officials, uh, on businesses that are uh, enabling what's happening? They're all going to agree. And I think it's important for us to step back and just think about the momentum that that is going to take on. I don't see any way around it. I have I agree with them that we need to take all these steps. But but I think increasingly, you know, what's happening in Xinjiang and what's happened in Hong Kong and the human rights portfolio, which in the past in some ways was 
a, a piece of the relationship that in some ways was managed is now, I think, going to drive the relationship and particularly in ways that I think Beijing doesn't fully uh, comprehend. And uh, so I, I, I think that's a shift in the way that in, in, the, in the place that human rights has taken in the overall relationship and moving toward being a driver. Well, that's really fascinating. I want to come back to that exact line of line of thinking, Tarun. But before we do, I want to run through one or two uh, kind of other recent developments because against this backdrop where we've seen this collapsed or at least severely hindered trade and economic conversation, we've seen two really serious human rights developments, human rights crises in a lot of ways. These, none of these really seem to be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the broader tenor of the U.S.-China relationship. Instead of anything, the precipitating event to this increasingly round of hostile rhetoric we've heard in recent weeks has been the COVID pandemic and this odd game of reciprocating comments accusing one side accusing the other of causing the pandemic or aggravating it with their actions, often with limited evidence or support to support them. Tarun, let me turn it back to you. Why is it that the pandemic seemed to be the precipitating event, the tipping point towards this much more open confrontational rhetoric between the two sides, at least from the view of a lay observer such as myself? Is this just a convenient excuse does it have to do with the domestic pressure both parties, particularly the Trump administration, is under? Or is there an actual broader reason why that has become the focus of such a heated part of this this relationship now as opposed to these other big issues that have been kind of sitting in the wings for the last several months? Yeah, well, you know, look, there's no doubt about the degree to which, um, you know, the politics of this um, are are incredibly salient and, you know, for good reasons in some cases. Um, but I, I do think, you know, it's important to note that it's not just the U.S. and China, right, that have had COVID as kind of a, a spur to, to more rivalry or stepped up tensions. I mean, it, we've, we've seen this elsewhere also, right? Um, certainly in Europe, where you know the turn on five G, the turn in the UK in particular has come after COVID, and you know I think some of that is is has to do with the way that China's gone about its post COVID diplomacy, um, which has kind of laid bare some of China's intentions uh, in ways that had not been aired, I think, to a lot of people. It's grabbed a lot of. Um, Parliamentarians, right? You've seen now this interparliamentary union um, get more traction in the aftermath of COVID. So, I think that there's something about China's conduct post-COVID that's really done this, and, and obviously, you know, the dynamic with India as well, uh, with the border clash, is another uh, example of that. That all being said, you know, if 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 we were having this conversation back when Phase One of the trade deal was being inked. And you said it is, you know, do you think that um, the sentiment that was expressed at the signing of phase one was going to extend through the election? I would have said absolutely not. There's no way that the Trump administration is going to not find a way to make China, put China front and center in the election because he, I think the president's view is that it worked well for him back in 2016. He was going to find a way to do it again. Um, and, and ratchet up uh, tensions to some degree and then use that in the election. So I, I, I obviously he was not anticipating being able to use COVID in that way, but I, I thought we were headed for something uh, along those lines, no matter what. Elsa, did you have something to add here? 
Uh, sure, yeah, uh, great points to run. And I guess I would just say as well that to some degree, the way the geopolitics of the pandemic has played out really creates reasons to question fundamental assumptions about the viability of cooperation between the U.S. and China, even on the most critical of issues. And it has been profoundly disappointing to see both governments competing where once one would have hoped that that these stakes were high enough to engender some kind of cooperation at the very least. And I mean, even the fact that once, I mean, once pandemic preparedness or prevention, ideally in the first place, was looked to as a bright point, perhaps, or a promising arena for U.S.-China engagement, and yet we've seen that really undermined on both sides. And as the Trump administration has eliminated programs like PREDICT that were intended for that purpose uh, and uh, undermined U.S. scientific engagement with China, including support to uh, China's CDC, as we've seen, which uh, could have perhaps... uh, contributed to greater American awareness of the risks and emergence of a pandemic in the first place. Yeah, so certainly there is much, much blame on the U.S. side for the failure to cooperate with China in any meaningful manner when the stakes for the country and the world are literally existential in some respects. But at the same time, it's, yeah, as, as we've seen, the Chinese government has really look to this crisis and disruption in terms of geopolitical opportunity in ways that are, I do really question whether there is a genuine commitment to to global goods in a sense, or how cynically to regard uh, statements from Beijing espousing that. So for instance, the fact that we've seen Chinese hackers targeting just about every American uh, company and research institute that is working on a COVID vaccine or treatments, even yeah, even as at the same time, uh, encouragingly and hearteningly, there has been relatively functional collaboration on American and Chinese scientists and yeah, the framing of the fight for a vaccine as a race and a contest instead of a complex endeavor where we'd hope to see greater coordination, again, is it is disappointing, but perhaps predictable and given recent events. But even some of the recent accounts and reporting that China is seeking to condition access to a vaccine on acceptance of its uh, geopolitical aspirations, uh, including some of the linkage of its outreach and response to COVID to the notion of a health silk road is as again, troubling in some respects, but difficult for the U.S. to critique or respond when we've also seen bad behavior by the U.S. government and really a failure to step up. So there is a vacuum that the lack of American strategy and leadership has left where it's really staggering to see that in this vacuum, China has in some respects stepped up, but they have stepped up in a way that I think is Again, as we've discussed, revealing of their intentions in some respects and revealing of a desire to lead in a way that ties very closely back to promoting national interests. And yeah, and I think at the end of the day, what where I think we'll see the long-term ramifications of the pandemic going forward is 
the extent to which at the end of the day, it has been a test of models and systems of governance, or at least that is how the Chinese Communist Party has seen it at home and how they've characterized uh, this crisis on the world stage. And the U.S. so far has failed on many fronts. And this is really a, a reckoning with many systemic problems we have to resolve, but also is inextricable in terms of foreign policy as this reinforces Beijing's capacity to promote its model, promote its health silk road, promote its alternatives, even if they may be heavy handed and counterproductive and in some respects backfiring, as we've seen some of the growing concerns about how Beijing's handling the response to the pandemic. The U.S. has certainly been critical and with good reason of some of these steps, as have China's neighbors and countries around the world that are observing the wolf warrior diplomacy and opportunism in in the wake of this crisis. Yet yet so long as the U.S. is is failing to produce a compelling alternative at home or, or, or diplomatically, we have really limited capacity to to start to change the game and start to move forward. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier. On Marketing Against a Grain, we're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Elsa, as we've seen this heightened rhetoric around 
COVID happening on top of these other developments, we've also seen it enter and in some ways trigger a new phase in another ongoing debate. We've had this tension over China's growing role in the global telecommunications and really technology sectors in a variety of ways percolating for a number of years. Uh, it's really came to a head over Huawei and 5G in the last few years. It's still an ongoing debate. But now we see this new phase of pretty aggressively targeting apps tied to China, Chinese-owned apps like TikTok and WeChat, to the point that the president is using pretty exceptional legal authorities to try and work his way essentially into the phones of every 13-year-old in the country to take these apps off of them. What, again, is it that has led to this sort of phase? Is just this just another sign of this escalation on multiple fronts of the relationship and effort to build pressure on China? Or is there something very specific about these technologies and a lot of these other fronts on the technological debate that we've seen this administration pursue that is of genuine concern? So while there are genuine concerns in play, and in some respects, U.S. government measures have been a course correction that is belated and and can be justifiable, all of these actions are being carried out in in a manner that is so clumsy and so poorly rationalized that it becomes incredibly counterproductive and undercutting the administration's own objectives as they as they describe them. And so I'd start by saying that a unique feature of the U.S.-China relationship, at least until recently, has been the coincidence of military rivalry and geopolitical competition with quite a high degree of economic interdependence and technological entanglement, so to speak, among the American and Chinese innovation ecosystems where American and Chinese companies and researchers were quite engaged. And when we've started to see other measures to impose different restrictions on that, some warranted given PRC tech transfer tactics that range from the legal to the outrageous uh, and criminal. But when it comes to thinking about some of these latest measures with regard to apps and platforms in particular, I have hated the word decoupling with a passion because I think it is, it's uh, abstract. There is no clear sense of what the the desired end state is. It is sometimes coincided with uh, this rhetoric and policies that are sort of wielding these authorities as a cudgel without a clear rationale or strategic objective behind it. But I think to some degree, if we consider decoupling to be sort of the increasing divide or divorce, so to speak, of the American and Chinese innovation, information ecosystems in particular, when it comes to how the U.S. internet and Chinese internet are looking increasingly dissimilar from each other, arguably that did start in Beijing when American companies were excluded initially. So there has been there have been these asymmetries and a lack of reciprocity in terms of the in terms of the restrictions in place and the fact that while America had been quite open and hopefully can sustain openness to the extent it's beneficial. Uh, The Chinese government had long since in the past started to view American companies as Trojan horses for U.S. values and interests, as well as the 
risks of espionage, especially in the wake of Snowden back in 2013, a an episode that I think had quite a bit more impact than was realized or appreciated at the time in terms of catalyzing China's drive for indigenous innovation and to develop substitutes and alternatives for American companies and technologies. But yeah, the irony is that indigenous innovation or the notion of a state exercising sovereign control over its cyberspace is increasingly becoming a shared feature of U.S. and Chinese approaches in ways that undermine American advocacy for internet freedom or for more of a democratic paradigm for governance of of technology and of the internet as we know it. So these measures, uh, when it comes to the particular executive orders that we've seen rolled out, the bans on TikTok and WeChat, these can be justified. But again, the administration has done a very poor job of making the case for why this is genuinely a security threat and why this is necessary. And I'd also add that the rationale of using emergency authorities at uh, at a time when there is a much more urgent national emergency in play, it does make this seem almost farcical when, I mean, when whether we're looking at TikTok, I mean, especially in the context of informational operations and interference, as well as the Chinese military and Communist Party uh, experimenting with the use of social media for for propaganda and for establishing discourse power and manipulating global narratives. There, There is a rationale to be concerned about TikTok. There is certainly evidence that it has been far from transparent in in the workings of its algorithm, its censorship, or alternatively promotion and promulgation of content. Uh, I mean, it, it is uh, certainly a vector of risk. And given ByteDance's uh, uh, despite its uh, attempts to sustain independence, the extent to which it's been forced to accede to party priorities when it comes to how it's operated within China, that does raise questions about its global activities. But again, I think uh, to start with this ban, while there had been a process behind it with Cepheus and otherwise, the as always, there's a tweet or a statement that that undermines the case for this being a coherent measure when it comes to of claims or aspersions that this could have been intended to undermine its value, especially in the context of sales, Trump claiming that the U.S. should get a cut of any sale, and also the uh, possibility that cannot be discounted that some of this was uh, TikTok teens uh, hurting Trump's feelings with regard to the rally, and to the extent that that may have uh, had any any bearing on this decision, this again does take what is a of a real and serious debate about how we think about freedom of expression for an app that has become part of the U.S. discourse and activism relative to the concerns about having a foreign company subject to the authority, even potential coercion of a foreign government so far within the U.S. in that regard when it comes to our our discourse, our expression. So yeah, I think it remains to be seen how this plays out and whether there is a deal or an alternative uh, for a credible distance between TikTok and China under American auspices, but that will be interesting to watch play out. Yeah, this does at the end of the day seem to be something of a lashing out at Chinese companies uh, without a clear strategy or coherent rationale behind it in ways that do raise concerns that, again, measures that could be 
thoughtfully implemented in a way that is calibrated to the actual security concerns are instead appear to be getting caught up in perverse political incentives. Tarun, do you have something to add here? Yeah, thanks, Scott. And, and, you know, I think Elsa's laid out really well the kind of parade of process files that we've seen in the last several weeks on this front. But I, but I do think that we, you know, we have to face up to this kind of pretty fundamental challenge, which is that China's laid out a very clear vision of Internet um, sovereignty. They have laid out a pretty clear vision of uh, bifurcated kind of world of platforms. And so the question for us is how, how do we maintain a free and open Internet while China's going to keep our platforms out and at the same time hoover up as much data as possible uh, or certainly make sure it's available to them whenever they want it and then combine it with all kinds of data that's been uh, stolen through multiple hacking efforts that have been pretty well documented. And, you know, there I think, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic that there's going to be a uh, an equilibrium in which we don't see some degree of bifurcation. And the question is really going to be how do we go about it in a way that maintains the free and open internet for free societies and protects the data and security and privacy of users in those societies. And those are predominantly our allies and partners. Uh, and by all means, we should be doing it together with those allies and partners. I think that's at the top of the indictment list for what the Trump administration has failed to do. But the fundamental dilemma is one that's not going to go away. In this budding relationship with this sharp elbows, these exchanges, this heated tension. Some experts have pointed to the fact that this is not just an American phenomenon. This is as much a a change in the Chinese posture. Uh, And in fact, the emergence, uh, by some accounts at least, of a more aggressive Chinese vision or philosophy of foreign policy, what some have called a wolf warrior posture off of, I believe, a television show or a movie in China. Rob, can you tell us is there truth to this? Are we seeing a real shift in the Chinese approach to these sorts of issues and that's contributing to this tension? Or is their response much more reading the room in regards to the Trump administration's approach to the relationship? Well, Beijing's certainly being more assertive, both at home and abroad. You know, in terms of the Bill of Particulars, we see a very heavy-handed crackdown in Hong Kong following enactment of the national security law. Uh, the atrocities in Xinjiang that we've talked about. Tarun mentioned the recent clash along the disputed border with India, uh, which resulted in the death of of perhaps 20 Indian soldiers. Um, You know, bullying of neighbors, intimidating Taiwan with military exercises and other activities, uh, sinking a Vietnamese vessel in the South China Sea, spreading disinformation around COVID-19 and on and on and on. So I can't speculate, you know, what goes on inside the heads of Chinese leaders. But from the outside, the assertiveness seems to me possibly driven by a kind of paradoxical and dangerous mix of both hubris and insecurity. So on the one hand, you know, Beijing may see an opportunity with U.S. relative power in decline generally, and the U.S. distracted by COVID-19 more specifically in recent months. You know, on the other hand, China faces enormous challenges, especially on the domestic front with slowing growth, uh, a massive debt overhang, and some pretty tough choices ahead in terms of taking the painful steps needed 
to avoid the so-called middle income trap, you know, which may help to explain, at least in part, the fear of domestic instability. And so you add to that the Chinese government's desire to deflect attention from its own bungling of the pandemic in the early days and the, uh, the subsequent economic impact for China and for the global economy, not to mention the public health impact. You know, so I tend to think it could be some of both insecurity compounded by arrogance leading to an overplaying of China's hand. Uh, I'm not entirely persuaded by the argument that we're seeing a dramatic shift in China's foreign policy, or, or at least not so dramatic that it creates the inevitability of a new Cold War dynamic. But I do think that you know China's increased wealth and power mean even a largely continuous Chinese foreign policy, uh, applying the very considerable means China now has at its disposal, is going to be unsettling and potentially destabilizing. So that requires some fresh thinking about how the U.S. can work with allies and partners and also with China, you know, to help shape Beijing's incentives in a very complex global environment. So this all, these developments, these trends all led to a pretty exceptional set of remarks by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo a few weeks ago outside the Nixon Library, a particularly symbolic location for the remarks, um, because of course, Nixon was the architect of the normalization strategy towards China, bringing China into the community of nations in an effort to move towards a more normal relationship with the United States and providing a counterbalance to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But we saw Secretary of State Pompeo essentially say that that strategy was a mistake or something close to it, and begin to argue that China's resistance to international norms, uh, China's general posture, was instead cause for a very different approach, um, something that sounds a lot like regime change, although I don't know if it went quite that far. Tarun, what are we supposed to make of these remarks? Is this really just a sign of a complete shift in the American tactics, at least from the Trump administration's views? Or is this really just another ratcheting of rhetoric that's symbolic, but doesn't have many substantive implications? I, I, I saw Secretary Pompeo's speech as a capstone. It was a capstone to the series of speeches that the senior administration officials had given on China uh, over the preceding months. And it was also a capstone, I think, kind of on, on the administration's China policy and kind of a preface in the same way that the White House strategy document was uh, for the series of, of actions that keep unfolding uh, over these weeks. And I expect to continue probably well toward the end of the year, even potentially after the election uh, as well. You know, on the question of, you know, engagement, I mean, I, this is not just the Trump administration that's uh, kind of delivering a eulogy for engagement. I mean, you have folks like uh, Orville Schell, you know, writing about the death of engagement uh, as well, Orville being a longtime China scholar, um, uh, someone who played a role in kind of early stages of engagement as well. Uh, and so so I, I don't think that's unique to the Trump administration kind of pronouncing the end of engagement or engagement as it was conceived of for several decades. I, I think, you know, the, the, the main challenge, you know, for Secretary Pompeo was a bit of the CCP style doublespeak, where on the one hand, there was this vaunting of the free world, but the administration's, if anything, 
made the free world a bit more brittle, whether it's actions in Eastern Europe um, or whether it's what the president said to Xi Jinping about Xinjiang and so on. Um, it's kind of hard to take seriously some of the arguments about standing up for democracy, for human rights and the free world, given the administration's record. Um, on, on, you know, the question on regime change is interesting in the sense that he walked right up to the line. He did not call for regime change. I think even kind of suggested that that was not the administration's policy. But, you know, the challenge there is that, you know, the demands, and I think this is not just going to be for the Trump administration. I mean, this would apply to a, a new administration as well as, you know, s- some of what Beijing is doing on so many fronts that, that Rob and Elsa have been discussing with us today are so are, are so inimical to U.S. values and U.S. interests that what we, you know, I, I think that what Washington is going to be looking for is a fundamental change in the character of the regime. So we may say it's not the regime itself, but the character of the regime is what's kind of posing all of these challenges. And I think that's going to be an enduring challenge well beyond this administration. True. And that really sets us up well for what I want to be our closing question, which I want to direct towards all of you today. And that is, what should we be looking forward to in terms of the new trajectory, if there is a new trajectory for this relationship? We know the Trump administration has set out this new course, rhetorically, at least um, with these Nixon Library remarks, although we'll wait to see what they actually manifest to. Is are we Should we expect one particular path from the Trump administration and a substantially different rum from a potential Biden administration? Or are we now at the stage where external factors, our interests are simply pushing the United States to this more confrontational or at least competitive posture with China? And that's going to be a feature regardless of who the president is or who the policymakers are guiding U.S. policy towards China. Elsa, let me direct that question towards you first. I don't know if I have a great answer because I am about as confused about what's happening in D.C. as I am about what's happening in Beijing these days, if not more so. Uh, For all that we've seen these articulations of strategy from the current administration, there just simply is such a discrepancy and contradiction between rhetoric and reality and such a sort of bizarre dichotomy as well between these thundering condemnations of the Chinese Communist Party, which up to a certain point are are, are warranted and justified given, as we've discussed, the human rights situation, quite aggressive behavior by Beijing on the world stage and otherwise, yet these also rather flattering and and obsequious, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, uh, references to admiration of Xi Jinping and seemingly a desire, at least on the part of the president, to get along and to seemingly, in some cases, endorse uh, Xi Jinping's actions and decisions with regard to Hong Kong and Xinjiang, allegedly, in some cases, as has been reported. So there is this duality or tension in U.S. policy that that I think does reflect this fundamental just lack of coherence when it comes to how our country is functioning right now. And I don't think any of us can think or talk about foreign policy or national security without recognizing the gravity of what is happening at home right now. And the talk of great power competition in lofty and abstract terms when 
We are still in the midst of a pandemic that has proven absolutely devastating in ways that it didn't didn't have to be, clearly, given how other nations and other democracies have weathered it much more successfully. We are seeing a reckoning as well with systemic racism that is long overdue and badly needed as a nation, including, yeah, including arguably as pertains to our ability to live up to our values and principles at home and exercise any moral authority, let alone soft power on the world stage. And, and one where action is badly needed and where I hope we're starting to see some progress towards, towards justice and re and thinking the radical reforms that may be necessary to, to, to right those wrongs. And we're, and we're also seeing efforts by the current administration to, degrade and undermine the fundamentals of our democracy. And it's hard to claim that we are engaged in this existential competition against a regime that is authoritarian when we're seeing a president who traffics in some of the same tactics. And again, I think to the extent that this is a systemic competition or a contest of models for any viable strategy or sustainable approach, we have to start with trying to rebuild our own country and our own democracy, first and foremost. And I think only from a position of strength or recovery can we think about competing and recalibrating on so many critical fronts in the US-China relationship, because competing while we are on such shaky footing is just not not going to be viable in, in in any sense. Rob, how about you? Yeah, uh, there is an overly simplistic narrative out there uh, suggesting that there's a kind of bipartisan consensus in Washington on China. In reality, you know, to my mind, to the extent there is a consensus, it's largely one of diagnosis, but not of objectives or the strategy and policy tools appropriate to achieving those objectives. It's hard to predict what a second term Trump administration might prioritize or do, you know, under a potential Biden administration. I think some things probably won't change all that much. You know, for example, you know, Biden would likely remain skeptical of China's economic practices, particularly around uh, intellectual property and market access. Uh, some of the other issues we've discussed, you know, there'll probably be continued efforts to reshore and, and diversify at least some supply chains uh, and reduce economic interdependence in certain strategic sectors. But, you know, the approach to dealing with those concerns uh, would almost certainly be much more multilateral and engage allies and partners leveraging our common interests as opposed to alienating those countries. You know, think of tariffs on Canadian aluminum or, uh, or holding up appointment of judges at the WTO appellate body. You know, Tarun mentioned Secretary Pompeo's remarks in the Nixon Center speech about bringing the free world together. And I think it is tragically true that this administration has undermined, at least to a considerable extent, the U.S. ability to do that through the America first uh, kind of rhetoric and approach. So, you know, I, I would also expect to see, you know, under a President Biden, probably a more measured tone rhetorically uh, with respect to China. 
more of a coherent uh, interagency policymaking process that is you know, less contingent on the whims or the deal-making instincts of the president. I think we'll see more emphasis on human rights concerns at the presidential level, particularly with respect to Xinjiang and Hong Kong. And I think a President Biden would be less keen to sever people-to-people relations uh, through immigration and, and visa restrictions of various kinds that, in my judgment, have not been particularly effective. Um, you know, finally, Vice President Biden has made in some of his statements uh, and writing, he's made global cooperation on climate change uh, and pandemic response kind of central pillars of his foreign policy agenda. And that suggests to me that there would be some guardrails and limits on the extent to which a different administration would go kind of whole hog into Cold War style confrontation with China. But the big picture, you know, in some ways, the entire ballgame, uh, as one of my colleagues recently put it, when it comes to dealing with China, is working with allies and partners and through multilateral institutions. I mean, just, you know, one final note on that, that doesn't mean cajoling them into signing on wholesale to U.S. positions. Uh, you know, it's necessarily going to involve, I think, some elements of compromise. The challenge, I think, is going to be crafting a unified approach. You know, for example, you know, Elsa was referring earlier to data protection issues and, and digital trade, you know, standards on that very a thorny set of questions, finding a unified approach that's effective in creating an, an incentive structure for all countries to want to join that club, but that doesn't get watered down to the least common denominator, acknowledging the political realities that, you know, we're not necessarily unified on all these issues here in the U.S., much less with our European counterparts or partners in the Indo-Pacific. So that kind of basket of questions, which these recent actions against TikTok and WeChat really bring to the forefront illustrates for me that no matter who wins the election, there are some really big and important challenges ahead. Tarun, I'll give you the last word. Thanks. I, I agree with a lot of what Elsa and Rob said, and I particularly the point about um, working with allies and partners in, in addressing the China challenge, just a, a few things that I think are, are going to be pretty constant, no matter who wins. One is, you know, the primacy of the, you know, the interest of the, maintaining a stable U.S.-China relationship. Obviously, we don't want, we don't want conflict, a militarized conflict with China, but the idea that, you know, the top priority is maintaining comedy in the relationship, those days are over. The fundamental interests, you know, have, have clashed to such a degree that uh, I don't think that's going to change, no matter who's in the White House come next year. Second, I think there's a, you know, there's sometimes this dichotomy of, you know, we just need to run faster and worry less about China. Um, I think you're going to see a combination. You're going to see we're going to be running faster, and we're going to we're, we're going to. I think I hope we'll, we'll build a bipartisan consensus on making the investments to do that. But we're also going to be pursuing competitive strategies, including on issues like export controls, hopefully with our allies alongside uh, that kind of domestic investment and, and, and reform. You know, I, and I, I think that that's that's true even on the cooperation agenda. So I, I think sometimes we conflate a little bit the distinction between public goods and cooperation. You know, cooperation 
can be a means to achieve public goods. But on the other hand, and this is uh, something I'm working on with some colleagues now, is to make the case that sometimes securing public goods may require leverage and some degree of coercion. You know, if you look at the climate challenge that we're going to be facing uh, and what China's doing with Belt and Road Initiative in terms of uh, its spree of coal, building coal, coal plants, um, the delta between the climate reality it faces with its coastal cities and, and, the, and the policies it's pursuing is huge. And there may be uh, a lot of room for public pressure, I think, uh, even in pursuing a public good like, like a sustainable climate. And finally, I just say, you know, one of the things I hope we can do is shed unrealistic expectations on both sides, because I think they're actually dangerous. You know, I, I, I've, you know, here from Beijing now murmurs about a reset if, if Biden wins. I think that we need to be sober on both sides about the, the competitive and even rivalrous nature of the relationship now. And that if we do that, we're actually going to be much better off and we, we, have, we have a chance at, at, at a more stable relationship than if we harbor unrealistic expectations about what could actually change in the relationship at this stage. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. Robert Williams, Elsa Kanya, Tarun Chabra, thank you for joining us today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. This podcast was engineered by Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts.